Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Nerdum and Other Nonsense Anime Podcast. Today we're reviewing weeks 3 and 4 of the summer 2017 season. My name is Bcom, and this anime sprint of death trying to catch up with the season is making me see anime characters in real life. Luckily the main ones I see are Nina and Rita from Rage of Bahamut, though every once in a while the girls from Angel's Three Piece do plague my nightmares. Also with me is Leo. What's up, everybody? So uh, this episode is a little bit special. Some of our synopsis will be shorter since we were just trying to catch up with the season, and we apologize in advance. Uh, and but you will still get the general idea of the episode, so don't worry there. But uh, say for some reason you prefer our shorter synopsis and then a little bit different style we're doing. If you really do, then just you know send us a message at nerdmanother on Twitter or email email us at nerdmanothernonsense at gmail.com. I mean, if the response is overwhelming, then yeah, it's definitely something we'll definitely want to look into. And also, there will be changes to our first episodes of each season, so as to avoid situations like this one happen again. Uh, more on that when we start this winter season, but other than that, we uh, hope you enjoy this episode, so take it away, Becom. So, starting with Sundays, our first show is A Centaur's Life, and we'll start with episode three, which is titled... Uh, where do the little ones get so much vitality? And also, regardless of the generation, magical girls are popular, huh? I think so, your first sentence would be a better title. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, my first sentence is, this episode is all about lowly cuteness fan service. Like, mm-hmm. completely. So, it starts off immediately. Hime has a little cousin centaur uh, named Shino. She has black hair. She's very cute. In the first, Oh, it's her niece. Is it her niece? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because she, at, remember later on when she sees him off, she calls the uh, the girl's mom uh, Oni-san or whatever, older sister. Yeah, I don't know. I thought I saw the word cousin at some point, but I'll defer to you because I, I didn't pay that close attention to that part of it. So. Yeah, because I was totally, totally trying to figure out who this At first, I thought it was like her mom's sister, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was okay. her older sister. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, in the very first shot of the episode, Shino, the little centaur, like runs up to Hime, kisses her on the cheek and then literally rubs her face on her breasts, on Hime's breasts for like a solid minute. Like she's just rubbing her face repeatedly, like on her face and on her breasts for like a minute as like Hime's mom is talking to like Shino's mom. It's ridiculous. It's like what a cat does. It rubs its face on you and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're like little half horse girls. So I guess if you want to think. it that way that's their their animal instincts you know whatever once they finally get out of the house they randomly meet up with this student council president uh angel girl tama who we've met before and she has triplet cat girl sisters who are named chiho chinami and chigusa and i would be lying if i didn't say that almost the entire reason i became interested in watching this show in the first place was the short clip of those three cute little cat girls in the pv for the show so i was excited when they showed up so basically the main conflict of this first half of the episode is that Shino is really jealous of the cat girls who are like fawning over Hime and trying to kiss her because Shino wants her all for herself and this leads to her asking questions about whether or not it's okay for girls to kiss other girls and Tama-chan who's like 
she says it's not because like she's talking to like a little girl and her sisters and she doesn't really want to have to explain love and homosexual versus heterosexual relationships like on the fly however the two like lesbian girls from their class show up and when they hear what's going on they just kiss each other on the spot to show that it's totally okay well the one kisses the other yeah the one like instigator kisses the other girl the other girl's like happy about it though and she cracks me up she's funny in one of the other episodes too she was and so tama like starts freaking out and like hits them with like a like a vegetable or something a leak a leak yeah like oh, a yeah, big the good leak. old leak <laughs> <laughs> uh so this leads to the cat girl triplets like chasing after shino and trying to kiss her it's extremely cute like as like she's like galloping away and they're all like running after her uh and they all eventually end up in a little water fountain and i loved the way that tama uses like both of her hands and one foot to pick her little sisters up out of the fountain and take them home basically uh so yeah when hime and shino get home this is where it gets a little bit more lewd they proceed immediately to take a bath together uh and they're like washing each other's bodies and shino's looking at hime's boobs like whoa um everything is covered conveniently by steam clouds so i wonder if they'll uncensor that for the blu-ray i kind of hope they don't because it's pretty (laughs) lewd uh, it's very fetishistic that whole scene but anyway I like but one it, part I liked of it was when uh, Hime was like lay your ears down so I can wash your head like so you don't, don't don't get water in your ears and she like lays her ears flat on her head like a horse would it was, it was yeah. weird I, I, I just want, wanted to say though it's yeah there's really no point in having this scene in here but to Americans this may seem weird probably not most anime people they know it's normal for Japanese people to take baths with uh family members so yeah there's that look it's better than angels three-piece where the dude is taking baths with his younger sister like repeatedly you're still watching that <sighs> plagued by nightmares <laughs> i know up in the one episode <laughs> meanwhile shino looks at hime's breasts and asks if she makes milk <laughs> end scene <laughs> so at the at the end uh hime's aunt pulls up in a van designed to like comfortably seat centaurs which i liked seeing uh and hime gives uh shino a kiss like she's asleep basically and for some reason hime's like aunt or whatever says she wishes hime was a boy but she can't give shino away to a lowly yuri lover like Hime. <laughs> it was like okay it was like a little bit of a Just i don't a know joke. Lewd joke yeah whatever yeah so, okay, moving on to the second half of the episode, this introduces Tama's fourth little sister, Sue, who is also like a little angel. She looks just like a little Tama. And she's little, she's younger than the other cat girl sisters being toddler aged. Basically, Tama's mom, I think, is an angel and her father is a cat guy. So that's how she gets cat girl sisters. Um, her sister is like very weak and gets sick just from like running around a little bit outside but Tama has student council responsibilities so she leaves her sisters at home and says you need to take care of your little sister don't go outside Uh, so she goes off and then they immediately go outside (laughs) they invite lots of friends over too and they play outside until Sue gets sick and then they come back inside and take care of her a little better Meanwhile, Tama is at the student council meeting and it starts to run long and she's like, she says something like, I've indulged you long enough. We need to make a decision right now. Uh, And they're like, they push back against that and they're like, no, this is way, this is too important. And she's like, no, what's actually important is like my time and my family and I need to get back to them. And like, it was a good speech. 
It was. And like some girls come up to her in the hallway afterwards and say, like, I understand what you're saying, but I think this is really important. And then she tells them, like, hey, I saw my grandfather die on his deathbed. And his last words to me were, let's go home. And like ever since then, she said, I've decided to put my family first no matter what. So I liked her speech. I liked how adamant she was about that. Um, and then she gets back home and it's weird. Like there's this there's been this like little goat girl who's been playing with Sue like the entire episode. And we thought it was just like one of their like the cat girl's friends. But it turns out that like nobody else like really saw her and that like maybe she was like a ghostly spirit who was looking over Sue. Her which dad is weird. says that, right? Yeah, her dad kind of uh, when they dad live at gets a shrine home, and he talks about some ghostly spirit that uh, yeah. it, he's like, it's a good one, but it just hangs out with like uh, lonely people or something like that. Yeah, it was a kind of weird thing to throw ghosts into this world, but there's so many crazy things going on already that I guess why not? So. Yeah, that's that's episode three. You had oh, man. you my, saw something in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh my! It, I started laughing so hard I had to pause it. But there's just this, the quick scene where like she ends her student council practices and then goes to the supermarket. But the supermarket, I don't know how intentional this was, has an English name. It's called <laughs> Max Varu, and I just lost it. <laughs> I could I could just totally hear Japanese people in my head saying. Max value <laughs> instead of max value, yeah. Yes, <laughs> so yes. Dumb. And I just, I just lost it, and it killed me. And I was like, I don't know. It's just this little thing. It's a two-second screenshot, but it, it had to have been intentional. It was pretty funny. I loved it. So I'll read the title for episode four, and then you can read your alternate title. So okay, episode four is called "Why Are We So Bewildered When We Receive a Love Letter." Slash, you cannot, uh, you can tell what type of person is by whether they believe in Yumas or UFOs or not. UFOs. What's your alternate title for this episode? Uncomfortable and awkward as fuck. Okay, so let's <laughs> and my get note into is, why that I can't wait for me come to do some of this synopsis because you have to talk about vaginas. So basically, the I don't know why it's amusing to me. Just go with it. <laughs> yeah, the first half of this episode adapts. I've been hearing about this ever since this anime air or started airing. Like, there's an infamous chapter one of this manga that they, they a lot of people thought they weren't going to adapt because they kind of skipped over it with the first couple episodes. Um, so, but they do adapt it here. So, in the first half, Hime gets a love letter from some angel folk boy classmate. And she runs away from him instead of giving him an answer. And her friends try to get her to explain why, like, the whole day. And she just keeps avoiding them until eventually they go over to her house where it's a little safer. There's nobody around to overhear. And so, Hime says, when she was on a school field trip as a little kid centaur, uh, they went to see some farm animals. And they're, like, looking at the back of a cow. And some shitty kid next to her says, like, oh, does yours look like that, too? Meaning, like, the cow vagina. (laughs) (laughs) And so Hime developed this complex where she has never even looked at her own private parts because she's so scared they might look like a cow's. And she feels awful about it. And so, like, she, she can't go out with this boy because she feels like she might be ugly down there, basically. So Nozomi is like, I have a solution. And she says that she and Kyoko will show Hime their vaginas and then check hers <laughs> to see if everything is all right. 
You just love that I said the word vagina, don't you? I don't know why. <laughs> Not to mention the situation a, you're, you're using. Such a nerd. It's, it's just it's blowing my mind. So Nozomi goes first, and they get like right up in there. They're like breathing on it, and she's like, "Oh, that breath tickles!" Like and then, they're uh, staring it down. <laughs> yeah, they're just like in there, like a fine piece of art, like <laughs> just diagnosing anything wrong. And then so Kyoko goes second, even though she doesn't really want to. Nozomi basically has to rip her underwear off, and they look at her. There, she's like, "Yeah, it's furrier than I expected," because she's a goat girl. <laughs> Uh, and then Hime goes last and it turns out she has a very pretty vagina good for her (laughs) Nozomi like slaps her on the hindquarters and says you're good to go and like she's all happy so um after this, these events, uh, Hime then has the courage to accept the love letter from her boy admirer However, when when he asks like for an answer again, or they go they meet again, she just runs away because it turns out like all he said in his letter was like I love your huge breasts, so she he wasn't really a good fit for her anyway. Guy's not smooth at all. Yeah. Uh, so the second half of the episode is Hime and Kyoko helping Nozomi stay focused on studying for an exam uh, so she doesn't fail and stay behind a grade. But that's not very interesting. What is interesting is when Nozomi spots a UFO outside the window, which no one else sees except for her. And then, but they start speculating on who it could be. And they wonder if it's the Antarcticans, a society of reptilian snake people who live in Antarctica. Little is known about their technology, but apparently they're at odds with America and they charter craft from the Aztec nations in order to travel around the world. And the Aztecs have a snake deity named Quetzalcoatl. And this is just this is all this world building is kind of batshit. But I was just sitting there like chuckling (laughs) to myself. Um, But the next day at school. They introduce like they are sorry. They notice a bunch of uh, increased security and military presence as on their way, and it turns out the reason is that they have a transfer student coming in, and it's the Antarctican snake girl named Quetzalcoatl Sasasul. Is that right, Sasasul? Yeah. yeah. I want to say and, I like the blue they used on her. I really like that color. That shade oh, the blue. color, like her yeah. eyes, or just like her uh, her, her eyes body. and the jewel in her head are the same. Yeah. So she's literally like a girl but her entire top half is just snake uh so we rarely see something like that in anime and so she's introducing herself to her class and Hime just has this horrified look on her face and then like they kind of meet eyes and Sasasul just like flicks her tongue and like Hime like yelps and that's like the end of the episode it was oh that that was because the teacher assigned uh Hime to uh give the student a tour and help her out yeah <laughs> so that's why she was like terrified and yeah then when she flicked her tongue she yelped and i laughed it was, it was good <laughs> all right uh any other thoughts on that mm-hmm. just lewdness lots of yep. lewdness lots of fan service it was it was kind of fun i see why people were surprised though when they did do that episode because that's mm. yeah this really the rest of the show really isn't doing that but yeah uh, so anyways next one princess principal episode three vice voice and i wrote way too much <laughs> that's okay we can get through it quick yeah so angel and the princess are like continuing your conversation from the last episode and angel's like you know we've tricked control and they should run away together and she already has the house set up and whatnot but the princess refuses because she needs angel's help to become the queen but Angie's upset by this, but says she will deceive the princess, the world, and even herself if she has to. Hmm. Uh, 
But then there we go back to the little tea room or whatever whatever it is when the princess is getting her hair brushed by Beatrice. Uh, when she apologizes for making the decision about Ainge without her, uh, Beatrice like voices her own opinion about being against it, and Dorothy and Ainge show up to give the two of them tour tour of sorts. Uh, they take them to what they called the club club room, and they haven't decided what club they are yet, but and a name and whatnot. But they're gonna figure it out. But then like Dorothy flips the backboard around to like a, reveal a wall of guns. The princess like picks up a pin and it accidentally goes off and explodes the statue's head. <laughs> <laughs> and then they finally get their next orders, and they have to board the HMS. Gloucester. 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 Well, so that's, that's how they say in Massachusetts anyway, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> because they had stolen their printing plates from the Commonwealth, and they can use those print, printing plates all, obviously, make more money than totally wreck their economy and what's up. But, so it goes up to the princess to board the ship and create an opening so the others can board. But if she doesn't want to do it, Ainge can also always wear a dress, but they end up going with the princess anyways. Uh, and then this is where we get a little background behind Beatrice and why her voice is like it is. Uh, it starts to go out there in her conversation. She has to like run away to fix it. But it turns out her father was obsessed with machines and started experimenting on his daughter. Asshole. Yeah. So he puts like a mechanical voice box in her. Like, yeah. God. So. Which gives me hope for, and I, my hope <laughs> yeah, I know. was I saw, delivered I upon in the next episode. Got, so, yeah. And when that did happen in the next episode, I did crack up there because I was like, <laughs> "That's awesome!" <laughs> so the princess ends up ends up boarding the ship with Dorothy along with her, uh, but they won't let like Dorothy board at first. Uh, uh, board at first, but then she you know uses her sexy body to mess with the sailor and says she can't hold it any longer. She needs to go to the bathroom and whatnot. Uh, meanwhile, Ange and Beatrice are like posted up on top of a water fueling tower waiting. But uh, Dorothy is in the bathroom and asks the sailor to like, please move away a little bit since it would be embarrassing if he heard her. But she uses the opportunity to sneak into the ductwork. And what she eventually does is go to a a valve somewhere that apparently also is connected to this water tower and opens it up so they can get in. Then she eventually goes back to the uh, uh, bathroom, gets her way out. Uh but then they start using the water tower and like Beatrice falls in and like Ange has to jump in to save her and they do end up on the other side eventually. Yeah, Beatrice is just kind of being like annoying the whole time. She's like, yeah, she like gets pulled in by accident. She's like, I'll yeah. never help spies. Yeah. Wait, I can't get more. I'll never help spies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> I can't get that high, man. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can. Uh, uh, Ange explains a plan to her. You know, once they get the plates, I'll parachute out. And that's when she's like, I'll never help a spy. And uh, Angie's like, well, you have to help me now because if you get caught, you will crack and then they will find out the princess is a spy and that's all on you. And she's like, oh shit. Uh, but the girls make it their way to the communica- communication room and Angie does some like 1960 spy hacking and starts listening to everybody on the uh, telephone slash airwaves. Uh, she ends up finding the line she wants and listens to the captain in charge of transporting the plates. Ange can hear ammunition rounds in the background and knows she needs to make her way to the gun room where the captain is. But the gun room is like really far away. So she decides to climb on the outside of the gun room using her cavarette. That's what they call it. That little green glowy thing. Uh, oh, okay. But before, yeah. But before she goes out, she attaches a line. And she's climbing out the side of the ship, and like the ship gets stuck, struck by lightning, which electrocutes her, and she's like unconscious, dangling from the edge, and like 
some of the soldiers see her and they like sound this is weird what happens here they sound an alarm because they thought they saw somebody the captain comes down he's like it's preposterous there's no way there's somebody on the outside turn off the sirens but then there's a whole pursuit anyways it's I don't yeah like there, there's officers who just literally see her and start shooting and at that point the captain would probably have to believe something is going on right you know it's yeah. kind of dumb <clears throat> but then there's just her running down the side of the ship dodging insane amounts of bullets <laughs> and she eventually like makes it to the hatchway where they, the guys are and she does some fancy stuff and gets down on the inside but Beatrice back up at the ship is uh they know where she's at and they're like getting ready to blast the door with a cannon. So she jumps on the line and de- and goes ahead and repels all the way down it to where Ainge is. But unbeknownst to her, Ainge is down there currently fighting. And when that tension's on that rope, that pulls her back. And it looks like she got the final, like she's going to get her wrecked or whatever. But then it cuts away back to Beatrice, who does land in the room. And it's like destroyed. Everything's in flames. She spots Ange uh, sitting against a wall injured. Ange tells her to take the place and go since there's only one parachute left. Uh, some of the crew arrive and can't get the door open, so they decide to blow it. But Beatrice changes her voice so that one of to that of the majors and tells him he's okay not to blow the door. Uh, one of the crew is still suspicious and says he is Sergeant Stewart and asks the major how his day went yesterday because Ange heard the conversations earlier and we know she's practically superhuman she tells beatrice it's actually corporal henry instead and he is going to propose tomorrow and she you know relays that back to him and you know avoids that whole disaster uh the two strapped together with one parachute and hopefully her camera holds together before they land because in an earlier scene like when she was unconscious it's just sitting there going the whole time it's like cracking and stuff mm-hmm. and of course they land it's okay uh, but what's important about this episode is now Ange and Beatrice have a better understanding of each other and Beatrice has come around to this whole spy thing finally. And also, why do I love this ED so much? It's so catchy. I love both. I love the OP and the ED. Oh, the OP and OD? Yeah. If there's going to mm-hmm. be a show that has that you weigh the both the OPs and the EDs, this one's probably going to crush everybody else this season. So I had a couple complaints with this episode, mostly surrounding like Beatrice's character. Like she didn't bother me as much the first couple episodes because she was like in small doses. Mm-hmm. But now that she had like all this screen time, like her screechy lowly voice was just getting to me. Yeah, well, they, they're going to take care of that next episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think saying, this like, is like her character introduction. Like the first episode was kind of ages mostly i would say in the second mm-hmm. episode was more dorothy yeah definitely so this one's is beatrice's and the princesses has also been peppered in there as long as ages still so i feel like now since they kind of got her episode down it won't be so bad anymore yeah i was just thinking like her ability to change her voice is so useful but like she literally can choose any voice and she chooses this screechy lowly voice as her normal voice and i was like ah oh, so annoying um <laughs> but uh and then like when they were on the ship they're like trying to infiltrate and she just keeps yelling at like the top of her voice as they're trying to like sneak into the ship and like yeah some guards come and notice like hey who's there and then they have to like sneak by uh, anyway, but um, why, do, do, why does one of our comrades sound like a little girl? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and like I was thinking this whole episode, like, oh, if one of the other girls can just discover a way to turn off Beatrice's voice mechanically with like Cavorite or something, I would be so happy. I hope they do that. They didn't so. even have to go that far. <laughs> so but uh, and the other thing that annoyed me was like so when Ange is running around the outside of the ship, like she's getting shot at by like 
hundreds of bullets and i was like there's no way she could dodge every single one of those bullets like so like my head cannon had to be like maybe the cavorite like bends the bullets around her or something but then yeah but then they would have like animated that you know yeah it just seemed like over the top like not as many bullets we still get the point you know just calm down (laughs) so episode four which is called roaming pigeons so this episode is again a flashback to when Dorothy was tasked with stealing a sea ball or a Cavorite ball prototype from the kingdom. So we see the kingdom testing the technology in the first scene and also a male spy from the Commonwealth using a camera installed in like a book spine to to capture like this being ha- this like image happening. And so the Commonwealth spy leader L also tells Dorothy like Something for her own ears as as she as he gives her the mission, but we don't know what that is until later. Um, and so ch- I don't, I don't really. I guess it's just to put suspense up there. But you you could have told us now, and it would change nothing. Yeah. So Chise is also back in the picture of this episode, and I, at first I was like, wow, they didn't do any like introduction or like fanfare for how she got there, but that came later. So the girls are like all practicing tailing each other, and Beatrice is terrible at it, of course. Um, but they like use this technique where like one of them sits on the other's shoulders, and they can pretend to be like a big guy, like as long as they have like a mask, and so that comes up later as well. So. Uh, they get the mission, they all dress up in pretty fluffy dresses and drive to the ceremony together at the kingdom. Um, and there's, yeah, this ceremony is like, I don't know what the ceremony was. It was was to like celebrate the mine or like the Cavorite mine, like discovering new technology or something. I don't uh, know. Something like that. But it's what's important is it's being held at, at the, mine. the mine. Yeah. Um, so the princess and she's a Stay behind up at the ceremony while Dorothy, Ange, and Beatrice run off to steal this sea ball prototype. So Dorothy steals like the first key they need and helps the other two sneak by a guard using her like like it's kind of getting old, but like her main spy tactic is just being drunken, sexy woman with a guard. And I was like, this is why you always need two guards. So there's one guard that's jealous that she's hitting on the other <laughs> guard. <laughs> well, I mean, that's her thing. She's the honeypot. Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. I mean, she's got the body for it, too. So whatever. I guess so. So, yeah, she's older than the other ones. So uh, so Ange and Beatrice get by two more guards by having Beatrice do the thing where she sits on top of Ange's soldiers and appears like a tall guard and they have like a gas mask on her face. And so with a deep voice, like she tells them, like they set off a smoke grenade and they're like a methane explosion happened and the guards run off to do something and they get by. Back upstairs, we find out that this is sort of Chise's introduction episode because she's standing with a man who approaches her at the ceremony. And we later find out his name is Lord Horikawa. So I'm assuming he's sort of like some head of the Japanese spy team. And he's telling Chise, like, we need to decide here, like, who we can trust, the kingdom or the commonwealth. So they haven't really taken sides at this point. Uh, The princess, meanwhile, is speaking with her grandmother, uh, who's royalty and the like the possibility of a marriage comes up to a Russian prince because uh, like her grandmother's advisor thinks it's about time for the princess to be married off so they can stabilize the kingdom and all of Europe uh, but the grandmother is against like 14 I, yeah she's pretty young I don't know like 13 14 I guess yeah meanwhile At best, 16. Yeah, at best. <laughs> it seems Ange's, uh, so Ange uses her own, like, cavaret or whatever. I was confused at first, because I was like, 
wait, are they steal? Is did the kingdom invent the first Cavorite ball, and they're stealing it now? Like, or did they? I think I think at the end of the episode, I came to the conclusion that the Commonwealth has already discovered this Cavorite ball technology. That's what I assumed, also. Yeah, and they're trying to stop the kingdom from perfecting it too, and that's what this mission is about. So, yeah. And, otherwise, like Ange would have stolen the sea ball and then like done a whole bunch of acrobatics for the first time ever using one, and that didn't make any sense to me. So it only only makes sense the other way. So she, well, jumped, I mean, she had it last episode, and I think we're going chronologically now between sort episodes. of like flashbacks. Yeah, like two, three, and four are like chronological flashbacks. Episode one was before all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she flawlessly jumps between a bunch of mechanical equipment and gears and drops herself down this exhaust fan and into the mines. Um, so then we find out it turns out the message that L, the spymaster, gave Dorothy at the beginning of the episode was that this mission is going to deal a major blow to the kingdom. So if the princess is a double agent, she would likely act and intervene and cause it to go awry somehow. So Ange finds the laboratory, but all of the equipment has been moved. Um, so she does this cool thing with her sea ball where she like throws it into the middle of the room and shoots it. And then it like kind of spreads out all these green like lights and it reconfigures like it shows her like that there was a bunch of heavy equipment and machinery in this room and that it's been taken out above her basically. So it's been like lifted up this huge silo uh, outside. So. She tells the rest of the girls, they all leave the ceremony and they go uh, get in their car and they chase down the river because they think the sea ball and all the equipment and the scientists are escaping by boat. Um, And so like what we find out that what tipped the kingdom off was that they found that hidden camera in a book spine that the spy had used at the beginning of the episode. So the girls continue to drive like really aggressively and recklessly in their car and Beatrice can't handle it like she's just screaming and wailing like the entire <laughs> way like all of the other girls are just like oh this is fine and then Ange, like a true mvp does exactly what he wanted she just reaches inside Beatrice's throat and just mutes her and i was so happy because i've been getting so annoyed at beatrice's voice oh, yeah, i thought she reached around to the back of her neck and there was like one of those uh turnkeys and she just turned it I think, well, every time Beatrice changes her voice, she reaches like literally inside her throat. I don't know. I couldn't, I didn't pay much attention because I was like whooping and hollering in like <laughs> excitement at this because exactly what I wanted to happen. So anyway, they arrive at a bridge and the boat is going to pass under uh, and they're about to like leave Chise and the princess behind again. But Chise is annoyed at them because like she's volunteered for this mission. She wants to, she's their best fighter. They've even admitted it and she wants to go. Um, but it becomes apparent that Ange wants to leave her behind because she's really just worried about the princess being in trouble, being in danger. But so the princess then steps up and says, like, I need to go on this mission because basically if I don't know if she wants to go with them to ensure it succeeds, because if they fail, then it leads directly back to her. So it hurts her anyway. So it's like her responsibility. And Dorothy is like thinking of this in terms of what the spy master told her. She's like, if, if she was a double agent, there would be no reason to take such a big risk and allows Princess to go with them. And I was like trying to work through her logic because I didn't quite agree with her at first. I was like, so if Princess is a double agent, then the kingdom knows she's working for them and would just protect her, just kill all the other spies. So what I'm guessing is that like if she's a double agent, she wouldn't want to risk burning her ties with the Commonwealth. So I think Dorothy could 
like rely on her to help them at least that far. But I don't need, I don't even think Dorothy was thinking that deeply, but I think well, that's, that's, I don't know. That's one of the things about double agents uh, or just a spies in general. Yeah. They need to know when they need to prove to who where their loyalty loyalties lie. And yeah. sometimes that's hard to tell until you've seen the end game. So, mm-hmm. so Ange could very well still be playing both sides, but she goes with them. Uh, the ending part I felt was pretty rushed. They kind of split up and drop down into the ship. They extremely quickly take out all the guards. And even though there's like a million more guys on this ship than the five girls, they just take over the ship. Uh, and then they like, I assume they turn the boat around and go back up the river towards the Commonwealth or something. They really kind of gloss over it. They just say, we captured all the scientists. Like they're back at home. It's like, we captured all the scientists. It's like, okay, like, but were the, the logistics of that? How did you get them all back? Well, that, well since nobody was in pursuit of them, I mean, I, yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter if they either phoned their other guys and they came and picked them all up or mm-hmm. yeah, they turned the boat around or whatever. I just assumed there would be like kingdom military at checkpoints, like looking out for this boat since it was carrying like the most important technology in the country and like all these I don't like know. important they were scientists. Really, they were trying to be really secretive. They probably that's didn't want true. Even too many of their own people to know. That may be a good good reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So also while taking over the ship, Ange and Charlotte, who is sorry, Princess Ange, who is also Ange, and then Ange, who we call Ange, but is actually Charlotte. <laughs> have a conversation about how like the princess wishes Charlotte would be more like how she used to be and treat her as a friend and an equal but Charlotte just hates the girl that she used to be so it's just like a little bit more backstory on them and then the girls for whatever reason decide that their name will be White Pigeon uh, for their team I think it was like a biblical thing like Noah sent a pigeon to survey the land from the ark so that that like yeah. represents spies and that was their reasoning I was just like okay <laughs> Yeah, this show continues to be, like, pretty awesome, though. Like, I like the action scenes and stuff. I just was so happy that Beatrice got muted because that really needed to happen. Like, Yeah, even stat. though they're little Moe girls, it's, like, really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I don't, yeah, I don't have a problem with it at all. All right, so let's move on. Um, next show on Tuesday is Restaurant to Another World. Uh, yeah. Episode three is Spaghetti with Meat Sauce slash Chocolate Parfait. So uh, first half of the episode, there's this guy. His name is Thomas Alfad. He's an older man, and he has a grandson named Sirius. And they're the two new customers this time at Nekoya, though Thomas has been going there for a long time. Uh, he's taking his grandson for the first time. Uh, he's gr- So Thomas is kind of sneaky. He's grown his own like restaurant and food business in his world with a mutually beneficial deal with the chef of Nekoya. Um, so basically what he does is he takes like ingredients from his own world and gives them to the chef. And then the chef like uses them to make sure that he's serving good food for like their palate. Uh, since he says like, oh, all of my cuisine is influenced by Japanese palate. So I need to understand like your food and the way they taste so I can better serve you. It's an um, interesting idea. Yeah. But at the same time, so and then so the chef also pays him in like jewels from like the various people who pay him to come to his restaurant uh, for these ingredients. Um, But at the same time, Thomas has been stealing the recipes 
from the chef's restaurant and bringing them back to the, his own world and using those recipes to become like this famous uh, genius of culinary innovation, basically. He owns up to it, though, to his grandson. Yeah. So his grandson starts eating the food and they order a dish of spaghetti with meat sauce. And the grandson is like blown away by how good it is. And but like one of the things he notices is that it's made with like this kind of vegetable that they've only started growing like recently and they haven't put it in any of their dishes yet. So he's like, how can this be? How can they have this taste? And his grandfather's like, he, he admits like what's going on. Uh, and he's like, I'm counting on you, Sirius, to carry on the family. No, business. he's like, no, I'm a, I'm a total sham. <laughs> yeah. and, but he presents it as like he did not do any of this for fame and glory. He did this yeah. literally to get all these this great food and ingredients out there so, yeah, he, and he literally just says like i just wanted to taste this food in our world as well like that's that was his main motivator even if yeah. it gave him fame and, and money like that's the main thing behind it that was just a byproduct of what happened yeah so that, i liked that first half of the episode i like spaghetti and meat sauce i'm glad they didn't do spaghetti napolitan like that japanese spaghetti that's made with ketchup because i would have been like please god no <laughs> <laughs> now this uh, show is fancier than that yeah so the second half episode of the episode focuses on this young princess named Edelheid uh, whose grandfather showed her Nekuya when she was young uh, I think the grandfather was like an emperor of an empire or like small empire or something but um, she doesn't remember much about eating there except that she ate clouds and so uh, we also get to meet like when she's a little girl like and she goes there she went there with when the former chef of Nekoya, the current chef's grandfather was there and so we kind of meet him and he seems like a really nice guy um now grown up a bit more she has this disease called pauper's killer's disease which has caused her to have this like cough and she feels like weak but apparently it's not that bad she can just survive it with rest and recuperation but she's not doing so well but the Nekoya door opens in her grandfather's old room in the castle and she goes through and she doesn't know what to order. And so she just orders clouds and Aletta's like, I don't know what that is. I'll ask the chef. And he remembers, though, he remembers her. So what she remembered as clouds were a chocolate parfait. Basically, her Which gra- yeah, surprised me because when they say clouds, I was like cotton candy. <laughs> Or like marshmallow or something. Yeah, like uh, ice cream is like a little too thick to be clouds. But. Yeah, so basically the way her grandfather had s- described it was like the ice cream was like a winter cloud and then there was plenty of snow on top. Basically meaning like the whipped cream was like the snow on top of yeah. like the, the winter clouds. And she just eats her parfait. It looks delicious. And that's basically the episode. Yep. It's just, this is a fun little series, but yes. All right. Episode four, omelet rice and tofu steak. Um, our newest guest is a blue lizard man named Gaganpool. <laughs> he has fought his way to the top of his tribe ever since he was young. And his door appeared one day, 30 years ago in an open area that is now a shrine currently for him. Uh, every year, not every year, every uh, week, the strongest warrior in the tribe goes through the door to uh, bring back food from the other world. And I guess he always orders three large omelet rices to go and one or two for himself to eat while he's at the restaurant. Uh, this whole time, there's like this woman narrating <laughs> and is doing it like it's like a straight up documentary. Like I'm sitting here watching. It's like I'm, I'm watching like Nat Geo or something <laughs> while she's doing it. 
Did you get that vibe too? Yeah, I now that I didn't think about it until you just mentioned it, but like it, it totally is like a nature documentary. It's really funny. Oh yeah, like I'm watching. She's tell, telling me about ant colonies now in Africa or something. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> but what's kind of cool is like out of the three omelets he brings back, all are different. Uh, the first one has a finely chopped meat seasoned only with salt and pepper. The second one is a cheese and bacon omelet. Mm. Oh, that was like oozing out of there too. Looks yeah, sick. and the last one, which really caught my attention, was filled with a white cream sauce and like shrimp. What, what do they call it? Shrimp or they something? They call it else? shripe in their world. Shripe. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's shrimp. It's I don't shrimp, I don't yeah. know. There may be a difference. I'm not aware of it. It's no. It's just the the word they have in their world for shrimp. Yeah. yeah. That one really caught my attention because like the other two, yeah, I've had almost like that, but not like this one. Yeah, it that sounds like it would work very well. Uh, I just liked the way that the lizards like smacked their tails on the ground when they approved of eating like mm-hmm. the stuff. It was funny. <laughs> that was cool. But our second guest is a blonde elf named Fardania who set out hunting and gathering when she stumbled upon the door. And she actually only finds the door because she can sense magic. And what she sensed was teleport- teleportation magic coming from it. And like when she arrives to the place, there has a couple of guests, like actually a bunch of the people from the last couple of episodes we've seen, they're in there like ordering and whatnot. And she has a seat and she's like looking over the menu and she looks around and notices like everybody's eating human food and is very barbaric. Basically, they're so, eating meat and she's yeah. like horrified. Yeah. yeah. So she requests a dish that has no meat, fish, milk or eggs. Yes. Vegan. Got it. <laughs> uh, he he doesn't have anything on the menu like that but he can whip something up. So he ends up serving her a tofu steak with white rice. And like when she's eating it, she can't believe a human created something far better than the else can. <laughs> and basically she goes back to her own world and encourages her to make better dishes in the restaurant when she returns home. Yeah. She's so. determined. And I like how she like runs around the forest and she has like 12 deer and rabbits running with her. It's really funny. <laughs> like typical wood elf fantasy thing yeah yeah yep that both of those episodes were freaking delicious looking oh yeah they can go with this trend i'd be totally happy with it uh anything else uh no let's move on to the next show what's your little comment here oishi oishi which because your comment on the first episode was yum and i Uh said oishi which is basically the japanese word for delicious or yum Or sugoi. Sugoi. That, that means like, like that super good. Yeah. That one's like, wow, or blew my mind. Mm-hmm. But anyways, Soccer Quest. We're on Wednesdays now, by the way. Soccer Quest, episode 16, The Harlequin on the Pond. So, yeah, I got some pretty short synopsis for these. So let us know if you like them, guys. Uh, Yoshino, Maki, and Sane are looking into why Karato Kata was drowning in the pond when they <laughs> hear a crash. They run outside to find, like, Karata behind the wheel of a crash fan trying to pull something out of the lake. Um, next episode, not episode, scene. We have Riri shows up with a picture the next day that has her grandma, grandma, Karata, and Doku playing in a band together over 50 years ago. This was crazy to me. I never that, would have expected this. Yeah, so this is also where like Chicho, Chitose, who is uh, Riri's grandmother, first started like hating Karata. But I'll whatever. just I'll just say I liked their band nicknames. Uh, Kadata's name was Beef. Uh, 
and uh, Chitose or Oribe's name was Olive, and Doku was called Poison, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but anyways, like the three of them planned to run away to Tokyo and try to make it big, but Karata never showed up at the train station because he went to the festival and jumped on a boat with a shrine and started playing and he like ended up causing it, the shrine to sink into the lake. And this is where the bad blood began between Karata and Chitose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the drying of the pond is turning out to be more popular than expected. Uh, the reason we find out that Karata didn't show up at the station was because he didn't want to run away from the town and instead wanted to show people how much better it was. Um, Riri telling her grandmother she liked her singing was like pretty cool and stuff because they went to uh, Darren, where's his name? Doku's and like he played one of their songs for them, like their most popular one, something about a rose. It was yeah. cool. It was a good song. Yeah, yeah, but then. Uh, where did I go? There we went. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because uh, Chitose advises Riri to like go out and experience the world before she gets old and doesn't care anymore like her. Yeah. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. Uh, but then in the end, the girls like desi- decide to revive the old festival, but are informed they need like three sacred treasures, the staff, the hanging drum, and the golden dragon statue. So... And- yeah, I was going to say, I liked a couple of things about this episode. Like, first, I liked how it informed us about, like, Kata's, like, crazy character. Because the reason he's always pushing the town forward and trying new crazy ideas is all grounded in that decision 50 years ago to, instead of go to Tokyo, like, stay behind, be loyal to his father who farmed Cabra. And, like, he couldn't leave his father behind. But he thought he could bring the town forward and make it a place that would accept him. Um, and then I liked the the continuation of the plot line between Ririko and Oribe, her uh, grandmother or whatever, where like she realizes that Oribe lied to her when she said that she never thought about leaving Mamiyama because clearly she was ready to go to Tokyo with her band, but she stayed behind. It was her idea. Yeah, it was like her I mean, whole push. Yeah. So and like, a band of all things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just I just liked that we're learning more. We're learning that these old people are liars and they had these crazy lives themselves uh, many years ago. Uh, and it informs all the ways that they talk to the characters now throughout the series. And, and going back, you can see it inform their characters. So it's a really good episode. Uh, was that it? Mm-hmm. All right. Episode 17, The Sphinx Antics. So the girls start their investigation into finding the three sacred treasures, but are basically finding no luck. Uh, they do finally get a lead on a man who like wrote a textbook on the festival and might have some ideas, but he lives like not far outside the country, the county. He like lives on the edge of the county or something. It's like not as rural where they are. It's more like the countryside. So they have to make like a little side trip in the car to go there. And they arrive and like he keeps calling them monkeys for... Uh, Japanese reasons. I don't know. <laughs> but he does have an idea that one of the treasures is in a storeroom in one of the old houses and like the girls leave and then he goes to his own storehouse to show that like he has the golden dragon statue and he comments with hmm I think I'll play a game with the five little monkeys and I'm just like what? <laughs> should I be worried? I guess so. Yes I should because I I, I text you a pretty funny message which I'll I'll put tack on the end here but uh the town uh seems it will be eliminating one of its bus routes that goes to one of the less popular 
populated jurisdictions close by, which is the one they were just at. And the problem is obviously money, which is always, you know, the most of the problems. But this community on the country is mostly old people who can't drive themselves. So that's like the big problem. They're just like, how are we supposed to get around? And the government, for whatever reason, was out doing inspections and stuff. And it like left all the old people living alone tablets so they could do like health checkups, checkups and stuff. That was the initial idea. Mm-hmm. But of course, like they didn't show them how to use them. So like <laughs> one of the guys just uses a flashlight. Another guy uses it to like steam his ramen. It's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, but the girls decide to teach them, which sounds like an absolute nightmare. If anybody's ever helped, had to ha- help their grandma or grandpa or elderly person learn a technology. I mean, trying to get my grandma, every once in a while I get a, a call from my grandma because she's accidentally switched the input on her TV. No, no. And then, like doing it over the phone is almost a nightmare. So I'll like, no, I'll just drive the 10 minutes over there. You know, I'll hang out with my grandma for a while, fix her TV, and then I'll drive 10 minutes back home. Yeah, my grandma has, like, completely rejected technology. Like, she won't use a computer. She barely uses television. So, yeah. (laughs) uh, See, my grandma likes her soap operas, so that's Mm -hmm. why she's always using TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also their idea behind teaching the old people how to use technology is also so the girls can broaden their search of the treasures. It's going to help them in fashion you know but in true internet fashion where you can hide behind a username tensions like flare and like some of the old people fight uh <laughs> and then in the end the old people take yoshino hostage and gla- declare their withdrawal from the chupacabra kingdom through the newfound power of the internet i was just <laughs> like what the internet started a revolution what can i say and so you had CD, so I messaged you and I told you something like, all right, if I can give you a quick synopsis of episode 17, it would be, old people discover the power of the internet <laughs> and then take Yoshino hostage. <laughs> and I know you had to be like, what the fuck? I was fuck? like, how the fuck did this, did this happen? <laughs> uh, so I like the whole subplot of this episode, which was basically about like, like rural transportation. And like, I was thinking like, so even the bus driver was kind of seeing like the progress with the tablets. And I think he was starting to put it together himself. Like what they need to solve this problem is basically Uber or well, the the other thing that they could use is like self-driving cars, but that's not here yet. So, but if they could like request a pickup on their tablet to the bus driver, he would know when he actually has to go there. So he doesn't just go there randomly and spend yeah, but he all has a money. bus route. He has a route, but maybe he could go out of his way like when they have when they schedule a pickup. And I don't know. I, I figured there has to be some way you can do this, like where it would work. But yeah, I mean, it's just technology could solve that problem. So it'd be interesting to see what they do in the next yeah, episode. Yeah, but anytime he had to alter his route, it would change the times of one of the other stops. And that's just not something they can update all the time. That's true. The, I mean, the whole point of a but the bus routes is that they are on point. Yeah. I mean, if you have electronic signboards, you could like say like, hey, this bus is 10 minutes late, but like nobody wants a 10 minutes late bus in Japan. So yeah, it's a tough problem to solve, but somebody has to solve it. So, I don't know. so which is why they took somebody hostage. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to Thursday and gamers. Uh, the surprise, the biggest surprise show of the season, I think. I think a lot of people think that now. It's, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure you and I had it. I may have said this last time, but you and I had a discussion of like, 
well, this game, this show is going to be shit, but I'm going to check it out. <laughs> exactly. We, definitely we both watched that. it and went, oh, <laughs> well, there was no, there wasn't even a PV or I think for this. Remember? Like, so we did, we couldn't even see any of it, like to know. if Yeah. It there was bad. nothing but the, like this little synopsis, which told you the basic premise, nothing, which doesn't tell you anything about it, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so we only have episode three this week because this started a week late. So there's no episode four out yet. So. Episode three is called Chiaki Hoshinomori and Street Pass Communication. So for no apparent reason, this episode starts off with a panty shot. Uh, just like a quick one, like introducing a new character, I guess. Uh, the title of this episode is basically a pun that Keita makes when he tells Tasuku, um, like Tasuku tells Keita that like he should stop letting Karen pass him by because Keita's like, yeah, I sometimes see her out of the corner of my eye. I don't know what's going on. Um, but Tasuka tells him, like, you know, stop letting her pass you by or else you regret it. And Keita asks, like, oh, like that 3DS thing? And then Tasuka, but before he catches himself, is like, he's at, oh, yeah, like Street Pass. And he's like, they kind of, like, hold for, like, five seconds to just let people absorb that pun and then move on. So uh, Tasuka is convinced, like, Keita needs some practice, like, before he'll be able to ask out Karen. So he has... So he has targeted some easier prey. And this girl is an otaku by the name of Chiaki Hoshinomori. She has this wild, like, tangled blue hair. And she's very, very shy. But she's into video games. Um, so Chiaki is in Karen's same class. And there is an amazing scene where Keita is, like, asking to come into the class and explaining to another student that no, 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 I'm not interested in Tendo-san, nor do I have any business with her. And, like, when Karen hears this and sees that, like, Keita is, like, not only, like, not coming to see her, but, like, coming to see another girl, she, like, turns into a concrete statue and then disintegrates into dust that, like, flies away. But then, even better, when he walks across the classroom, he steps on this dust as if she's still down on the floor and, like, she makes noises as she as he steps on her. It's just such a great visual gag. It's so funny. Um, so Keita and Chiaki, the girl with the blue hair, like, basically hit it off uh, when they both realize that they turned down the invitation to the gaming club for the same reasons. Uh, they both love games, but they don't want to be pressured in like a club that's competitive and they can't, you know, they just love games for their own reasons, basically. Uh, so they start to become close friends and there's actually a good visual gag where like at first they're sitting like on a bench near a bus stop and they're literally like 10 feet away from each other on this bench and then Kate is like we started to become slightly closer friends and like a bus pulls by and then they're sitting like four feet away from each other it's like they're still pretty far apart um, and so unfortunately though even though they've become friends they start to disagree on some like fundamental gaming questions they just have like friendly gaming arguments that get like a little heated so tasuku tries to get in the middle of one of these arguments and break it up and this is where the whole rest of this episode is about jealousy and misunderstandings starting uh so aguri uh you know Tasuku's girlfriend, the pink-haired one, she spots Tasuku talking with Chiaki and Keita in the classroom, and she assumes that he's flirting with Chiaki, and to be fair, he kind of is. He's telling her that her hair would look much nicer if it was cut short, and she took a little bit better care of her looks. At the same time, Karen is getting a piggyback ride from some other classmate 
to like look in the window and she's fretting because it looks like Kata is getting really close with Chiaki. So Karen thinks like he's like getting interested in Chiaki, which is also just some truth to that. So they all come to school the next day and they hear this rumor of this like gorgeous girl who has come to school and nobody knows who she is. And it turns out Chiaki gave herself a makeover based on Tasuku's advice and now looks super cute with short hair and everybody is shocked. And Aguri spots Tasuku freaking out over her and obviously reads it the wrong way and starts like running away. Keita <laughs> goes chasing after Aguri to try to cheer her up and explain what's actually going on. But Karen sees him chasing after Aguri and she asks why he's chasing after her. And all he says is, you could say it's relationship drama, <laughs> which again is very misleading. Poor Karen. Uh, she's like disappointed again. Kata asks Aguri to go to a cafe with him. And then even he thinks to himself, I can't shake the feeling that I've been hitting on everyone lately. <laughs> so <laughs> he goes to this cafe and explains to Aguri that what she saw wasn't really a relationship between Tasuku and Chiaki. And he like is rooting for her and she smiles and she walks away for a second. And Kate is like, okay, thank God that's handled. And so he invites his friend Mono, who is a person he's never met to play like Grand Blue Fantasy with him again on his phone. And by coincidence and terrible timing, it turns out that Mono is Chiaki and she happens to be right across the street from the cafe walking with Tasuku with her like Tasuku has his hand on her shoulder as he's looking at the phone, probably seeing that she's playing with Keita. And like, yeah, I, I want to say we were probably we we're already kind of aware of this. Like, yeah, episode was, two, maybe episode one. We saw something like this. Yeah, you could kind of figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So Aguri, of course, comes back, sees Tasuku across the street with his hand on this girl's shoulder, drops her tray of drinks and looks on in horror. <laughs> then there's this amazing camera shot of Ke- Keita as he turns to look and just going, <laughs> so good. And uh, the camera like zooms in on his eyeball and shows this image of the two across the street. It's just this show continues to have awesome comedic timing and writing, and I'm just loving it. So, <laughs> yeah, think, I agree man? with everything you said. The only other thing I can add is it just going back to that opening scene. Yeah, the panty shot. Yeah. Well, I was just like, why was that even put in here? It was so weird. It was just like such a random moment. I don't know. I guess it was to get your attention at the beginning of the episode. I don't know. I was getting ready to say that. And if that's what it was for, then I, that's a good use of it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it. that's what his intention was. That's <laughs> what it did. So, yeah. And I still love the use of like the video game noises used as like the sound effects in the show. Phenomenal. Yeah. Especially like the middle, like eye catch with like those, like the art of like the people holding like a tablet or a phone behind their back. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's cute. I like those sound effects. All right. Did you say we were on Thursdays? Uh, we are on Thursdays. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, convenience store boyfriends. Episode three, June. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're going by the months. <laughs> so Haruki is running to school because he's late and runs into the back of a Sumi at the school. And we also notice in this quick scene, there's a red blemish on Sumi's face next to his mouth. Uh, Later on, like Toa goes to Haruki in class because of something he saw. What he saw was Haruki's crush, Miharu, 
there's a lot of me's in this show yeah i complained about that later i was just gonna say like the two main girls are named i wrote it down somewhere they're like miharu and and mihashi yeah yeah it's like god could they not have done like slightly different names it almost killed me when i started doing episode four because i had to keep looking at uh my anime list because there were there's like three three or four of them are like me's and i'm like who <laughs> so uh yeah but anyways uh Haruki isn't like really bothered by seeing his crush talking to another boy he's like whatever people talk to people it's not a big deal mm-hmm. uh Haruki comes across Asumi and and a couple other track members having an argument like the other members are getting up on Asumi and like a long haired beauty which is if you watch the OP is about the only character we have not been introduced to yet for the most part. Yeah. Or at least given a name. But she's just a long haired beauty and she's also standing there next to her rookie. And then like she walks by and drops her books, basically cause, causing a scene right next to all of them. And like Haruki comes in to help her clean it up. And then like the track guys leave because he like the whole mentality of the situation is broken or whatever. But then Toa sees the guy that was meeting up with uh, Miharu and stalks him to one of the classrooms and like mommy finds him and yeah that's the other girl with the me name i need to switch either the first or last names <laughs> the show yeah. the, and the show kind of goes back and forth so i just i just write down what they say sometimes mm-hmm. uh so mommy finds him and then those two are startled by nozomi who comes up behind them and then they introduce him to the guy inside and that guy's name is nasa I was like NASA. Like, does he go to space? <laughs> he looks yeah, pretty spaced out. The Japanese pronunciation. <laughs> I know. I was just like NASA. read it as NASA at first. I was like, oh wait, no, yeah. it's probably NASA. Just, yeah, and he's just a really good cook, and like Nozomi is like totally obsessed with him and his cooking specifically. Hmm. But uh, the student council showed up at that last confrontation with Asumi and Haruki, and Haruki, I mean Asumi, gets punished by having to help out with the sports festival. And then the student council just lumps Haruki in as well because they need the volunteers. That was their literal excuse and they were up front about it. Talk about abuse of power, am I right? Yeah, that was pretty messed up. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, Asumi and Haruki bond a little bit and serving their punishment by talking about sports. They practice, you know. Cool, cool. And, like, Toa is, like, hiding when he visits the hospital in the mornings. And Haruki finds out Miharu has been paying attention to him since middle school. Also in another scene, that's basically what's just important about the last part of that. And he's just like, what? You <laughs> noticed me that long. Whoa, dude, it's totally gnarly. <laughs> and you're just going to pounce on me about me talking about good background. So go for it. I'm not going to be mean about this actually. So like, I wasn't, I wasn't that interested in the actual like content of this episode. Cause not- I don't think they've been as good as they were the first episode. Like yeah, the first episode, yeah. like that first five minutes, like totally grabbed my attention. Yeah, even I would agree that like it. This was just like a little bit of a slower episode that I didn't I didn't buy into it as much. Like the next episode was better, but so because I wasn't like paying that much attention to like the story, I was looking at like what was on screen, and I wanted to give like a better detail of why I thought certain things in this. Uh, and it's like certain animated things and certain background art in this series were like subpar or like just average and not like amazing. So what I did is like I went through our Google Doc and I took a couple of pictures of like the front of the school from this episode and like 
the hallways in the school and like the convenience store. And I compared them with pictures from shows from KyoAni. Uh, so like K-On and Hibike Euphonium. And like just basically in general, like the school like looks very computer generated in this show. Like it's very like rectangular objects very often. And like it looks like a lot of stuff could be copied and pasted. I ask, actually noted there's uh, at the beginning of episode four, they use like the exact same front of the school shot from episode three again. And I was like, oh, I only knew I only noticed this because I just took a screenshot of this. But it's like literally the exact same shot. And I was like, that's kind of disappointing that they're reusing this artwork when it's not even that great. But I did note that the one thing that looked better in this show, in my opinion, than in Hibike Euphonium was the convenience store. And I was like, well, the the show is called Convenience Store Boyfriends, so they better have a nice looking convenience store. And they do. It looks really good. Even um, if it didn't beat beat the other ones, it should still look really good. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm like I'm comparing it against like there's that there's a photo of the school hallway in Kaon, which is like maybe one of the most detailed school hallways in any anime. But even yeah, you're so, comparing it to like the best, like the Titans, like yeah. So that's but yeah. that's why like when you say it looks great, I'm like, well, it looks good, but it's not like top tier. So that that's that's all I wanted to say about that. It's just I was like looking at some of the stuff, and some of the shots look pretty bland, but other shots in the show look good. So that's all I have to say. <clears throat> okay, so episode four, and if you guessed July, you're correct. <laughs> so. It seems the high school sports festival is about to begin, as per every Japanese school. Uh, the classes have to choose to be in the... Each class gets to choose who's in what events. And Honda warms his way into doing three-legged race with Mihashi. But he actually has a pretty pretty good excuse because she's not doing anything else and nobody's volunteering. So, I mean, good on him. Uh, but Mihashi is initially against it because she doesn't think she's at athletic which was her big deal so they decided to, to practice and you know mihashi gets a little bit more confidence from that because they're gonna go practice now and we also find out mishiki this is when i get into the me's and the ma's it's <laughs> mishiki good luck sorry oops uh there we go fix that mishiki uh she can't participate in anything because she's not supposed to do strenuous activities i'm immediately left to assume she has basically a heart condition. She can't get your heart rate up. And I don't know where my mind is, but my first thought about that was, oh, that sucks for Haruki because when he gets with her, how are they going to have sex? <laughs> oh, no. If she can't get her heart. That's, that's the first place your mind went? That's funny. <laughs> well, also, I'm, think, I'm thinking of long term here. Okay, yeah. So this is a long term thing. Don't put me in the perversion. I'm looking at long term here. I'm like, <laughs> that's kind of a problem. Not you're, like you're just like Hime from Centaur's uh, life. If you're thinking long term. Like, yeah, I is mean, this I mean, boy gonna see this, my cow This is vagina? something that's eventually going to happen if you're having a relationship. <laughs> so, you know, think about it now. Plan, plan for it. You know, now so that when later it comes around, you're more prepared. Anyways, yeah, because they defunded planned centaurhood in uh <laughs> in that. <laughs> oh, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, please continue. Honda <laughs> and Miyashi uh, continue their training, and one day when Honda is late, he sees Mihashi on the phone with somebody saying she will call when she is on her way home. Uh, this does nothing else for the rest of the episode, and what the point of that was, like she was talking i just assumed she was talking to her parents 
and like you know she's or she's like intentionally putting special time away for this event because she actually secretly likes Honda, which is pretty obvious by the end of the episode. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, they move to like the real thing in the training when they tie their legs together, and Honda has to put his armor like around her shoulders, and like it really embarrasses her. <laughs> but then she kind of soldiers past it, and Honda like stands there patiently waiting, and you know gives her her time. And they start her run, and when she, like she trips, Honda catches her, and she gets like exercise, extra shy. It's like super adorable. I love it. It is adorable. I agree. Those two are probably my favorite relationship of the whole thing because it's actually out of all of them showing lots of. Pro- progression every single episode yeah and this three-legged race was a great way to get them to resolve their like space issues and stuff you know so Mm -hmm. it it was good because initially she wanted him to stop touching her so much but this is a situation where they have to touch but it's not in a sexual or perceived manner so Mm yeah uh asumi and mishima (laughs) there's the (laughs) more me's that's the heart H guy, I forget the name. Wants growing back up. Haruki, uh, they're sent right. out to like buy refreshments for the support club, and Mishima uses the opportunity to be like extra nice to Mashiki. And Mashiki has also been making like charms for the entire class, and all the work is starting to like wear on her. And this was from the last episode where like they suggested, you know, oh, this is how you could contribute because she doesn't feel like she contributes. Uh, but. Come the day of, she delivers in the end and rises at the sport events with special charms for the whole cl- for the charms for the whole class. But she even made special charms for Honda, Mishima, and Mihashi. So, ooh. <laughs> and also Nasama like made bentos for everybody, and he recruits Mishiki to help hand them out since she kind of feels like she isn't con- contributing even enough at this point. So that was, that was kind of neat. Uh, the three-legged race event starts and they just immediately cut to the end where they place fourth, which I'm totally fine with. Yeah. We don't need animation of them just running around the track. Though it would be glorious. This is not a sports anime. It would be glorious to see, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, they placed fourth, so they did really well. I mean, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mishima and Mashiki walk home together and get caught in the rain, forcing him to like take shelter in a small shrine. And it's also kind of cold, so he gives her her jacket so she stays warm. And I did not catch. I saw her look in her bag, but I didn't know what why she reacted the way she did. But you so, caught it. It was because she had an umbrella. Yeah, I think she had like the same gray umbrella as before in her bag, but she she zipped it back up because she's like, if I take out this umbrella, I won't get to stay with him a little longer under this little pagoda. And, uh, and I think, uh, also he gave her the jacket because like her, her shirt was getting a little bit soaked through. So it was a little see-through and so not just to keep her warm, but also to like keep her covered up and like dignified and stuff. It was, it was cute. That's how you be smooth. Oh yeah. (laughs) But they both blushed and I thought it was kind of cute. And I honestly started having a little bit of regrets about this episode. I thought it was kind of boring. Mm-hmm. I liked this episode more than episode three, though. But yeah, really? Yeah, just got, I liked the three legged race stuff. I thought all those moments between those two characters were really cute. That um, that was my thing. Those the moments between Honda and Mihashi, I felt like I could have done without everything else in the episode. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, like it was yeah. the redeeming part of the episode for sure. So, yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, hopefully it'll get better as it goes forward. Like, yeah, and I, I'm just saying it's it's 
I'm not saying I'm regretting the entire thing completely. I just mean like I watched mm-hmm. this episode and I'm like, man, if they keep doing this, what they did this episode, then yeah, I'm going to regret it. And I'm going to re-advise maybe rethinking something else for when we hit the halfway point. But yeah. All right. we can move on to Fridays. All right. We got Rage of Bahamut, Virgin Soul. And Woo! <laughs> and... As much as I love this series, I have some serious issues with this episode. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, uh, episode 16 is City of the Gods Part 2. So, Part 2 to the previous episode. So, L is still sulking around because no one understands him. And he's in his teenage angel rebellious years. (laughs) (laughs) If this is initially what they're going for, they (laughs) nailed it. Holy shit. (laughs) They definitely did. Uh, Nina comes to visit and she gets into this like raucous discussion with Bacchus over why he actually left heaven. And Bacchus claims he just wasn't into being pampered as a god and blew the joint. But Hamza says it's actually because he had a crush on a human woman and chased after her. Hmm. So... Eventually, they fall asleep, though, and Elle takes Nina's robe and, like, I guess no. some of her clothes, too? All of her clothes. This like, is where my issue starts. <laughs> How did he do this? I, so, he, and later in this episode, he's in her full getup. Yeah, because he has, the like, whole the, the breast plate with the boobs plate. Yeah, exactly, and everything. Exactly. <laughs> so, they fell asleep. He stripped Nina naked. Mm-hmm. Took her clothes off, <laughs> put his clothes on her, and then put her clothes on him. Look, he's a walked very out. powerful angel. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Which is, I would want to say super effing creepy, but <laughs> L's character, this wouldn't be creepy. This was this is totally like he didn't ogle at her when he undressed her. He just yeah. undressed her because he wanted her fucking clothes. Yeah, we don't even see him undress her at all. Like, yeah. No, so. he it, like you wouldn't notice. I don't think if you, if I didn't bring it up mm-hmm. or the uh, viewers didn't notice it. But yeah. yeah, he's in. He he undressed her. He had to unless she undressed herself mm-hmm. before she went to sleep. But I feel like more like they passed out in their clothes. No, she woke up in his clothes. That's yeah, right. No, no, like she had his clothes on. Also, she yeah, looked she woke really up good in his clothes. clothes first, and I was so just like, well. what the fuck? <laughs> Not to mention those guards are inept as fucked. Give me a break. Yeah, he just There's like, no way they wouldn't check. He just walks past the guards, doesn't say anything and just easily escapes. And um, uh, yeah, and I was like, uh, I'm sorry, I can't suspend my sense of disbelief that far. Meanwhile, uh, while this is happening to Nina in her sleep, she's having a nightmare depicting her conflicting emotions about Cherios and their large height difference. (laughs) It's so funny. Like in the dream, like he's like towering over her and she's like, should I jump to kiss him? What do I do? And then uh, basically she wakes up after like he turns back into his evil self and um, like she figures out what happened. She wakes up Bacchus and uh, Hamsa and they go running after her. L. So, meanwhile, Kaiser is sentenced to death by fighting in the arena, and his opponent is Azazel. Uh, and so we go back. Nina, Bacchus, and Hamsa are—they sneak out, pretending that Nina is L, since she's in his clothes, and they head for the hippogriff where, where they believe that L would have gone to try and escape the heavens. Uh, but L has found like a bunch of hippogriff carriages, but he—they all look the same, so he doesn't know which one is the one that he knows. Um. 
So there's uh, back at the arena, Favreau is sitting. He's disguised in the crowd and he watches as Azazel and Kaiser are battling each other with swords. Kaiser is mainly staying on the defensive and Azazel asks him why. And he's like, it's hard to attack. I only have one hand. And Azazel tells him, well, you better kill me if you want to live. Uh, so there's a cute scene where Nina spots L and silently mouths and gestures to Bacchus and Hamza the plan to surprise capture him, which basically involves them like all timing like themselves together and she's going to jump on L and they'll all rush in and get him. But they don't really understand the timing part, even though they smile and give each other a thumbs up. So like they all end up trying to jump on L at the same time and instead all crash into each other and collapse in a heap. And then L just flies away and they start running after him again. Um, back to the arena, Azazel has disarmed Kaiser and it looks like it's basically all over for him. Uh, and the arena crowd is chanting for him to land the killing blow. So Azazel swings the sword, but Favaro yells from the crowd and throws a little ball towards Kaiser. Um, Kaiser like dives forward with the distraction, retrieves his sword and then reaches out to grab what is actually Rocky, his left hand, which like smoothly reattaches to his arm. And now he's fighting with two real hands. Um, and using the surprise, uh, he runs Azazel through with his sword, but he also refuses to finish off Azazel. Um, so at this point, Favreau runs out into the arena. He takes several guards out with his pistol. And then he uses smoke bombs to cover the entire arena with clouds of smoke and they escape. And Cherios kind of just smiles as he sees this. He's just kind of entertained by it. Um, so Nina continues chasing after Elle on like this floating angel platform and she gets really close and she jumps, jumps to try to grab him. But she misses and starts falling into the void and Elle realizes he has to save her. So he dives after her and catches her, but they break through into that lightning storm barrier that they had come through on top of the dragon before. Um, and Sophiel asks Bacchus up above, like, if, if he's insane for letting Elle escape. And Bacchus is like to Hamza, like, they're going to kill us. We just got to get out of here. So they jump off <laughs> and he whistles and the hippogriff carriage, like, comes up underneath them. And then they fly down through the barrier and they pick up Nina and Elle mid-flight. Uh, and they all make it back through to the world. And then Elle, like, declares, like, I'm still determined to bring peace to this world. It's not even about fighting. I just and they ask him, like, but what about your mother? What about Jean? And he says, I'm, I'm doing this for her sake, too. And they all head back towards the capital. Uh, and then after the credits, there's a great scene. Uh, Favreau, Kaiser and Azazel meet up with Rita and Rita asks for Rocky back and like tells him he did a good job. And then Kaiser like implores Azazel, like, please come help us. Please help us stop Cherios's weapon. It's going to destroy all the demons, too. Don't you want to save them? I just had a twisted thought. Oh, what? The hand, what's it called? Uh, Rocky. Rocky. It's Kaiser's old hand, right? Yes. Do you think she uses it for immoral reasons? Oh, God, the Dojans are writing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. I had to uh, so Zazel says, like, I won't take your charity, but he also just goes with them after he's been convinced. Um, and then it's funny, Favreau is like, okay, well, I'm just going to head off now. And then Kaiser, like, grabs him and gives him a look that says like nah we're in this together old buddy and they that's the end of the episode so what did, you had a couple issues with this episode 
Uh, yeah, that was initially that, that just the whole scene of him escaping. And then also, once he escaped, why did they not inform the gods immediately? The blame would immediately gone to the guards at the door. So I disagree with you because who would you blame more? The guards who were tricked by a disguise or the people who were inside? The people who are inside who have Asleep. been tasked with guarding them. Who, they didn't intentionally let them escape. They weren't. He wasn't in a prison. He was just in a locked room with guards so that if he tried to escape, which is their whole purpose for being there. This is true. I mean, like both of them. If take they had blame. intentionally yeah. m- helped him escape. Yes. But if he escaped on his own and they didn't leave until hour, uh, I'm, I'm assuming hours or an hour later, mm-hmm. that's a different story. I don't know. It's all on the guards. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, you. I think it's on both of them, but it is a lot on the guards. Like the guards were pretty stupid for sure. But even then, if the gods allowed them to go in, that's, that would be on the gods themselves. Yeah. Giving them the opportunity to do whatever they fuck they did. I mean, come on. Okay. Yeah. I, I see. I see your point. Yeah. All right. Episode 17. They do the name drop. Virgin souls. <laughs> Good call. Uh, we begin with like Charis meeting with the Onyx Task Force captain when he orders the Red Dragon to be killed on site. Not the captain, the uh, Charis. Uh, and the captain is like suspicious. He asks if there's anything else he should know about the dragon. And Charis is like, no. Yeah. But he's like, hmm. But the gods decide to send a search party after Ill because they need him badly. And John volunteers to go also, but Gabrielle's against it. Sophia. Oh, like, yeah, you're right. Gabrielle. Sorry. I thought it was Sophia for a second. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Gabrielle's against it. And John's like, gives her the middle finger and basically leaves anyways. I'm going to go help. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, but then like the little angel with the glasses, like shocked to see Gabrielle clenching her fist in rage, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Uh, but uh, Rita and Bacchus and Hamza and sorry, Jesus Christ, Bacchus, Hamza, Nina and L got back to Earth and they're kind of snooping around. But then like Rita finds them and Rita's in this awesome ass getup. So I, you I, yeah, look this up. Um, apparently Rita is dressed up as a character from the original game called Devil Princess. So she's kind of cosplaying as this devil princess. And she's it's like her. Yeah, it's Wait, her she's disguise. She's from the game Devil Princess. She's from the game Rage of Bahamut. Yeah, the her game character Rage is of called Bahamut. Devil Princess. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, she's basically cosplaying as a character from the original game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like and a little. I don't remember this game. character when I used to play. So yeah, it's cute. Yeah, but I I just I saw this and I love this and I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. Even when she dresses Nina up later, which is, did you find out if she was dressed up as somebody else? Uh, I couldn't see if she was dressed by anybody, as anyone else, but she looked like a little demon too, but super yeah. cute. All right, we'll get to that. But Rita finds him, takes him back to the hideout where everybody else is, and like they have a little powwow and decide they need to do something to stop Cherios from being able to fire this weapon again. Fortunately, Rita saw that the bracelet was reacting to the device. So as their first measure, they decided to gather information for now. Mm-hmm. And John is like having, she's on the edge of like one of the uh, platforms in the God's Sky. She's having this conversation with Sophia. And then she just rashly jumps. <laughs> and of course, 
Sophia jumps after her and she saves her, but it was all part of John's plan because she knew Sophia wouldn't let her die. And in the same instance, also got her back to the home world. And then Jean does convince Sophia to help her look for Elle since they saved her life once before. Back in many, many episodes ago. Um, it's so awesome how Rita dresses Nina up as a demon also. And I, I loved it. Yeah. I want them. I have two screens right now in front of me and I want Rita on one and I want Nina on the other because they're so <laughs> awesome. They're pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like she's super happy and she like goes skipping away and just suddenly comes across Cherios in his disguise at the graveyard from an earlier episode. Uh, she's like spying on him. She accidentally topples over a gravestone and he turns around. He's like, what the heck? And she's like, I'm a demon. And whose grave is that? He's looking at. And it turns out it's his mother's who, and Charius knows it's Nina, like right away. He's just playing along with her. But as you point out, yes, obviously if his mother was thrown away once he was born, his mother was a concubine and she ended up dying as a poor lady. (laughs) And one of Bahamut's attacks is actually what killed his mother and also Nina's father. So they can really on that note. And like Cherios asks if she's a demon from the slums and if she can ask if she can give him a tour of them. And then like during the tour, Nina thinks he has to realize it. He she's thinking it's real that he has to realize it's her. And then when she suddenly notices he's not standing next to her, he's actually stopped at a stand that's just selling like a bunch of trinket trinkets. Uh, he interestingly. He buys one and gives away his glasses as payment in the process. And Nina specifically says, are you sure? But won't you be recognized? Cherios says, let's move on. And Nina is a dimwit and Cherios obviously knows at this point. So, because she just gave away that she knew he was Cherios. Yep. Right? Yeah. But he, I think so. he already kind of knew anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He. I mean, we know he knew she was Nina, Nina but, yeah. yeah, but now it's just at the point that like everybody they knows. both know who each other are. Yeah, I mean, come on. So they come across some demon kids playing soccer with like makeshift equipment. There's you know like like some ratty netting they can find a ball made out of like I have no idea what it is. But like Cherios joins in and he's blowing them away with the skills and and. And it like starts to turn Nina on, you know, seeing him playing with the kids and having a good time and like whipping around and sweat flying off and she's getting all wet and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) And then like he asks her to join them and like she's like flustered. So she like accidentally breaks her ball and Cherios is like, eh, whatever. And he takes his head wrap off to fashion a new one. Thus, you know, making him obviously more apparent of who he is. But then, like, he does that, and the kids go to play with it, but he throws his arm around Nina and points out the Onyx Knights that are, have been tailing him all around them. And then he's like, hey, sweetie, let's lose them. And then they run away holding hands. Yep. <laughs> um, And they end up, like, in kind of, like, this cave slash coast with, like, a little pool behind it. And Nina confronts him as to why he treats her so nicely when he's disguised as, quote, Chris. That's his uh, name for his uh, disguise. Whatever. He's Chris. He's not Chariot's then. But he does such horrible things when he's the king instead. 
He says there's something he must achieve, but can't tell her. He admits he had never met Nina in the first place. He would never have questioned his actions up till now. They finally embrace and kiss. Woo! And then, like, <laughs> Nina suddenly breaks away and, like, swims out into the pond. And I was, you're just kind of sitting there going, what the fuck is she doing? She dives under and then suddenly transforms back up into her dragon. And then transforms back into herself. And she's like, I finally figured it out. It must have been because of the kiss. So she can now control her transformation. And then at this point, Steppenwolf magic carpet ride starts riding in my head <laughs> as Cherios rides on Nina over the whole town. It kind of sounded, it was like Aladdin to me a little bit. It was very Disney. That's where my mind went Aladdin magic carpet ride. Mm-hmm. And then my mind went magic carpet, carpet ride to Steppenwolf. <laughs> like, I like to dream. Uh, yeah, just, just totally. Yeah. We both went magic carpet ride, which is the main point. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just, I, I thought that was really cool because it's a total reversal because it's always the male taking the female on a horse ride or a magic carpet ride or some type of tour, tourism type ride. But it was complete role reversal. It was the female literally having the male ride her through this whole thing. I thought that was super cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, But they eventually land and he tells her they tells her the next time they meet, he will tell her what he's trying to accomplish. He's keeping it secret for whatever reason. Now it probably is probably really horrible. And then the trinket he bought earlier, he also puts around his neck and they have one final embrace. Nina leaves and he turns to the screen screen and gives us a very scary, menacing and determined look. It was just like, Oh, it leaves you wondering, was he just lying to her or was he, you know, grounding himself to finish what he wanted to do? That's what I thought. I think he was like taking this as like one last moment for himself before he goes to do the really bad thing. Yeah. Okay. But then there's a very important but quick scene after the credits where the captain of his onyx guards says he knew the red dragon had him under a spell. So now that kind of sets up the Onyx Guard to be the ultimate enemy where maybe Cherios is, maybe Cherios dies or maybe he's like, you know, maybe he comes over to the good side near the end when he realizes things are out of control. So I like to dream. Oh, but also a big important piece of news. We're tech on the end here. You found this out earlier. Do you want to take it? Wait, which piece of news? Uh, Them taking two weeks off. Oh, yeah. So Rage of Bahamut is taking a hiatus for two weeks after this episode. So the next episode won't be until August 18th. Uh, I don't know exactly why they're taking a hiatus. I assume it's to animate the shit out of the end. That's at least my optimistic thinking. So assume and hope. Yeah, which which is strange because when either they delay like a day or even a week with a recap episode. I can't really recall anybody blatantly just taking two weeks off. Yeah. I don't know. It sucks. I mean, it happens from time to time. Yeah, but if they're doing it to what you you and I are, I'm hoping also, uh, to just make, edit the shit out of the last couple episodes. Oh, yeah. Be my guest. Yeah. (laughs) I would love that. Uh, so I also I just like Favreau in this episode like he crafted a new hand for Kaiser and like 
the first thing Kaiser asks is, is this one going to explode? <laughs> that was great. That was very great. <laughs> and uh, not going to lie, Favreau with his shirt off and his like ponytail hair looks pretty hot. I'm not going to lie. It looks good. Uh, no, I will completely agree with you because his fucking fro is stupid. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah, a gr- he looks way better like this. There's a great line when Rita says to like about L, like someone's gotten angsty while they were gone. <laughs> like when he's like being <laughs> angsty. And I was like, I liked that a lot. And uh, even though like, Cherios is like a genocidal kind of maniac. I kind of appreciated his romance with Nina this episode just because it was so well done. Uh, yeah, and then like you said, setting up the Onyx Knights captain as the actual bad guy kind of makes it a little more forgiving. Yeah. So like more more along the lines of like Cherios is kind of learning the error of his ways. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we will see. But you want to move on? Yes. So the next show is Made in Abyss, episode three, Departure. All right. So the start of this episode, Rico is determined to go to the bottom of the abyss to find her mother. Um, Her friend Nat is like understandably very against this because he's like certain she'll die or at least never be able to come back. Which you should be. Yeah, exactly. Like as dangerous as they promoted this place. This is the dumbest idea I've heard. Pretty pretty much, yeah. But moving on. So uh, Reg and Nat go out on Reg's uh, first caving expedition. And they find some like weird rubber relics that look kind of like potatoes or something. I couldn't really figure out what they were supposed to be. And uh, Nat... They like squishy. Yeah, they're squishy. Nat spooks <laughs> Reg with like a story about how uh, kids are dying on their birthdays after looking into a mirror. And then they see their twisted neck in the reflection and then they never wake up blah 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 oh shit so this coming Wednesday it better not look in the mirror <laughs> exactly yeah don't do it <laughs> don't do it Reg makes it clear that he needs to go to the bottom of the abyss to just try to figure out what the true nature of his existence is he tells Nat like I just have to I have to go and so Reg tells Rico that he's going with her and she like jumps and hugs him smushes his face in her chest and it's funny because his eyes are open the whole time he's hugging her or she's hugging him and he's like oh my god and then uh but when she moves away from him this huge string of snot just extends between their faces for way too long it was just so distracting and then like eventually like she well, like she was crying into his head yeah so it was like snot tear like tear snot or whatever i don't know yeah and then finally she like it retracts though with like when she sniffles with this like popping sound it was so disgusting it was it really cracked me up when i was watching uh so, but anticipating that everybody was going to be going down, Shiggy stole the most recent rough map of the abyss from the director of the orphanage's office. So he explains to them that the various depths and areas they'll have to face on this journey. Um, once a red whistle descends to the second level also, which is called the forest of temptation, it's treated as suicide because rescuing somebody beyond that point becomes extremely difficult. Um so yeah, the second level is called this Force of Temptation. The third layer is called a great, the Great Fault, which is basically just a flat cliff wall, four thousand meters in height. In height, uh, and then the fourth layer, which is only available to black whistles, is seven thousand meters deep, and it's called the Goblet of Giants. Then the fifth layer is called the Sea of Corpses, and that's a place that only white whistles have gone to. And 10 or less have returned, because they say you can count the number who have returned on your two hands. 
Uh, and then finally, the sixth layer is called the capital of the unreturned. Uh, when white whistles descend to that layer, it's called their last dive because no one has ever returned from there. So information is sometimes also sent back up to the surface we hear by like a hot air balloon. If the info is sent by a white whistle, it's considered to be the truth. Uh, but if it's sent from anyone who's in lower stature, it's just considered to be a rumor by anybody on the surface. So that, that'll be important later, I'm sure. Nat and Rico basically have a falling out over her leaving. And Reg knows that this isn't going to work and he wants to patch things up. So he has this sweet scene. He's looking for Nat to talk to him, but he, he sees like Kirui, who's like the little boy. And he tells him, hey, like when you grow up, I want you to grow up big and strong uh, and stuff. And like, I think that might be some foreshadowing. Maybe there will be a time jump in this series or at some point and Kirui will be a strong big boy by the next time they see him um or they just may never see each other again um so leader also i don't think so you don't think so yeah leader also bumps into reg uh and we find out that later on that he snuck something into reg's pocket before he left um because i think he had an indication that they were leaving uh in the early morning reg rico and shiggy head to go to the wharf quarter which is like there's this secluded place they can go to where they can descend to the depths. They can't just go to the main platform, obviously. And at the last minute, somebody approaches them who's kind of disguised. And Rico's like, she smells Nat, basically. She could tell it's him just by the smell. And he's like, fine, I'm going to show you how to get there. And Rico forgives him and like they make up and she hugs him and stuff. Uh, they walk through Aww. this. They walk through this wharf quarter. It's like this really dilapidated wooden buildings, like hanging out over the abyss. Just absolutely spectacularly gorgeous background art in these scenes as they're walking through that quarter. I thought uh, you see these like almost like zombie people hanging out um, and wooden. So yeah, I was gonna say Nat has a moment like when they get to this platform where he really badly wants to tell Rico that he loves her, I think, before she leaves. But he can't because he's just too overcome with grief and he's just too nervous. He can't do it. But I feel like Rico understands his feelings and tells him that, like, no matter what, uh, even if they never see each other again, it's okay because she believes they'll be connected by the spirit of the abyss or something. Um, so Reg uses his extendable arm to lower Rico and him down from the platform and into this black void. Uh, and that's the end of the episode. So yeah, it's, it's just basically the farewell episode. Yeah. And you also find that there's a little bit of love story between, uh, Rico and Nat. Is the other guy's name? Nat. Nat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's but, nice. Yeah. That's it. It's just, it's quick. But anyways, episode four, the edge of the abyss. We begin with Rag and Rico waking up in a cage made out of like Reg's arms, which is kind of cool. And they are also at the edge of the abyss. It's also the first layer and like hunger strikes and Reg goes swimming and catches like a fish for their breakfast. Uh, Rico also brought her star compass along that is able to point to the bottom of the abyss no matter what. But she loses it in the river and it's swept downstream because she's super clumsy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reg surprises her by giving her an envelope that leader snuck into his back pocket that you were talking about earlier. And yeah, he's clearly knew what they were up to. Yep. Uh, inside was like premeditated. Like he knew they were doing it before he caught him catching. Yeah, so, exactly. Like, wow. <laughs> uh, inside was a copy of the notes her mother had sent back of like all the creatures and 
you know, what they looked like and stuff like that. And also one more thing, a personal letter from later saying he will depart at dawn to go and capture them. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, using Reg's arms, they send Father down in the best. Uh, Rico accidentally triggers a silk fangs trap and they barely make it away at the same time. It's just this is it's a giant spider. That's all there is to it. Mm. Uh, they quickly afterwards come to a cliff where they can see the second layer called Force of Temptation. Also, if they make it to the second layer, nobody will pursue them. You said that in the episode before, yeah. but it's just nice to remember this. Uh, but then suddenly Red Reg's like headgear senses a green flash in the distance and he zooms in with his eyes to see a cave raider heading straight for them. They run away, but the figure catches up to him quickly, but it's just Habo. Mm-hmm. Her uncle. Uh, he seems to be there to the assistant to and has like a little comedy bit where he assesses Rag as a relic and even looks down his pants saying, there's nothing mechanical about those balls. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty dumb. <laughs> I was like, what? Why is this written in this show? <laughs> we assess this. It was funny when she did it. Yeah. Because she obviously doesn't understand these things. She's young. But when he did it, I was like, well, that was creepy. Yeah, it was pretty creepy. I thought so, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no excuses for Habo here. But it turns out Nat and Chigi went to Habo to beg for him to help assist the two. So that's why he even found out in the first place. And he ends up in the end giving two more rations and also a portion to uh, help with the a potion to help with the effects of the second layer. Uh, but be- just before they leave, he gives them one last piece of advice before he sets off that the person who helps helped carry Rico previously out of the abyss when she was born was called Ozen the Immovable. She's a white whistle, still active, and he should be wary of her. She'll be in the next town to go to. It was like the something camp. Yeah, I can't I remember, remember what it's called, but yeah. Yeah, and but he also says he can't go into details and that's just basically the end of the episode of them making to the second layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this episode was like kind of slow. Like I wanted them to make a little bit more progress, but at, like I think I'm just excited for them to meet this rabbit girl who keeps showing up in the ED. <laughs> so wanna, really? Yeah, I just want to know what the deal is with this rabbit girl. <laughs> but uh, hmm. it was all right. Like they got through the first layer at least, so they'll start off with the forest next time. Yeah. All right. all right, go on. Let's do some 18F. All right, yeah, 18F's next show. Uh, episode three is called The Witch of First Love. And yeah, this is um, like just a quick, quick synopsis because like not much really happened in this one episode. Like it's pretty straightforward. The new witch is a girl who has a terminal illness and basically wanted to experience love just once before she passes away. Um, so she basically, her in her real word form, she starts meeting up with Haruto in the park each day. I think this is still in the dream world, though. And she basically ends up going on a first date with Haruto. But then after some like words between them, she remembers what is actually going on with her and that she collapsed in school and is now in like a hospital bed. And this is when she like becomes a witch. She transforms uh, into a girl with like pink hair and ribbons. And from that point on in the episode, she basically seems to relive the same first date with Haruto. Uh, over and over like just having like your typical first date like going to the beach and like I don't know just singing karaoke like typical Japanese first date things until she's 
sort of become satisfied. Uh, and then at the end, though, it gets really sad because she basically passes away. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a sad episode. But at the same time, like at certain points, I didn't really understand what was happening or like what they were going for. But Leo, you this episode kind of made you uh, like teary eyed, didn't it? Oh yeah, I was super engrossed this whole time. Oh yeah, because I felt like from the very beginning, without completely giving it away you felt like she had a heart condition Mm -hmm. and she was going to die at the end of the episode yep so i really wanted to see what happened with her and you know she was kind of a i don't know she wasn't a nobody but as soon as she entered high school which was like a big deal for her because she was also aware of her immortality running out very quickly uh she really wanted to experience high school so like when she literally the first day just goes into a a coma like i I already felt really bad for her so they already had me hooked there and then now she's in her witch dream world and haruto's there and he's going on dates with her trying to help her experience you know having a first love you know being involved with somebody and like you felt like the dates repeated, but the dates were all very different. They did a bunch of different things. Yeah. And, and then, and then just, you know, when she finally passed away in the end, like I was watching this at work and I'm like, I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm like, I hope no way walks up on me right now. Because <laughs> like, I wasn't had tears running down my face, but my eyes were watering and I was like doing the uh, dab on the sleeve. Like, Oh <laughs> shit. This was, kind of touching and like I, I have no personal experience with this but like I, I felt it really well I felt I felt like I telegraphed it really well and that really leads into the episode four. Oh yeah where like I have no familiarity with it but I felt like it was telegraphed well enough I don't or I don't really know do you have any are we done with episode yeah, uh, three well, right now you can move on to episode four that's fine so episode four is the witch of gluttony um, and they basically start talking about, you know, uh, eating disorders, you know, uh, do you, do you have any personal experience with this or I have, uh, family it? members who have gone through it and it is very harrowing. It's a very tough thing to deal with. Yeah. Especially bulimia. It's really tough. All right. So we started off with the girl at the cafe being dumped by her boyfriend because he found a younger, skinnier woman than she is. And she's a, so his new girlfriend is a model and he's like, oh, but you, you know, you're a, what's a reading model? A reading model. I don't know. That, that's what they, that's what he said she was. Really? I don't know. Oh, I, I missed that. I don't know what that is. Is it, it all? It was weird. Huh. Yeah. And, but the thing is, it's not like she's overweight or anything. She's perfectly sexy yeah the way she looks have her totally fine yeah her boyfriend oh, yeah. is just a freaking asshole yeah yeah so anyways to get over she ends up drowning her misery and eating food and eventually puking up in the toilet but then the reflection in the toilet she shows herself witchified persona and apparently witchified is not a word so <laughs> i'm claiming it <laughs> uh yeah this this uh man this show is yeah, very over the place at the moment. So Haruto is like having lunch with like two little girls when the witch blows away the walls and attacks him with junk food. Adon takes out Haruto and he like wakes up in his room. 
But then the girl is shown weighing herself the next day before she goes to work and it's like showing it in like pigs and then like something, a chicken or a sheep. I don't remember. Yeah. But the pig obviously representing being overweight and it shows her overweight, which is stupid because she's not. I liked like but even later in the episode, she had like pig like shampoo bottles and stuff like she's seen it all around her. Yeah. 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 But she ends up going to work, which turns out to be a restaurant. Katsumi is currently there eating the curry because he absolutely fucking loves the curry. Mm-hmm. But then Haruto ends up back in the dream world with all the junk food again and the witch. And he buys into one of the donuts and realizes like there is no taste. I'm not sure what this went with, but whatever. There was no taste. And at the same time, it seems the girl in the real world is gorging herself again. Like this is late night evening. She's sitting in front of her fridge open. She's just eating everything she can. And then Harto wakes up again in his bed after being turned into a donut. Done. <laughs> Quick scene. He's back in the room with the two little girls again, eating the grandma's curry. Uh, and it's very apparent. I didn't, I didn't notice earlier, but one little girls is the younger version of the girl we've been seeing with the eating disorder this entire episode. Yes. Uh, yeah, there. It basically what the thing is. She's remembering making curry with her grandmother, which she loved to do so much. And but then also again that night she's going on another gorging spree. Uh, Haruto ends up in the candy world again, running for his life. And like Katsumi is back at the restaurant and knows the curry tastes different. But then we go back to Harto, who ends up sacrificing on a donut, talking to the witch. And she talks about how she wants to eat, but isn't sure she should. So that's interesting. Like, I, I'm assuming this is what people with eating disorders think about. Uh, Harto ends up at the grandma's house with the witch eating curry. And he encourages her to eat the curry. And they talk about eating and losing weight. Uh, he feeds her a spoonful of curry and it breaks a spell. She wakes up, wakes up the next day with a smile on her face. And she also seems to be resolved to find another boyfriend. And at this point, I'm wondering if every girl is falling in love with Harta. You know, our main character, Harta. Yeah, maybe. Well, he is saving them. Um, yeah. Yeah, this episode, would, I feel like if you had like an actual experience with bulimia, it might be kind of tough to watch this episode because it is like really kind of raw at times like she's sitting tough or relatable or mm-hmm. I, I dare to say enjoyable because you relate maybe but. maybe it may bring those feelings back to you though like there's points when she's like sitting in her apartment and it's like dark and she's on the floor with like a bunch of trash around her and she's just like clearly is just losing control of her life because and the of light this. is the only light is coming from her half open fridge and like, yeah yeah, yeah. And I think the thing with him not being able to taste the food was probably just a reflection of like the way she was viewing food now is not even as like something she tastes or enjoys. It's just like something she like mechanically crams down her throat uh, because of her affliction, basically. So, yeah, yeah they dark. had her eating like late night benches like five times that episode, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It really dove in. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Like she kept doing it every night. Like she would be totally fine when she'd wake up maybe slightly, uh, 
but then like she'd go to her job and be fine except for the one day she messed up the curry but every single night when she got home she would binge eat and there was like one little quick screenshot of like where like she went to throw something away and she was like why are these rappers in here like she almost didn't even remember binge eating yeah so it's pretty bad yeah I don't know. It may have touched on some like really cool things or good things. Not cool, good. But yeah, I'm not familiar with it, but I, I think it did a pretty good job. The episode was good. Yeah. All right. So finally on Saturdays, we have Action Heroin Cheer Fruits. Only one show yeah. somehow. Yeah. It's, isn't that weird? We only have one Saturday show. So uh, episode three introduces a drill haired blonde. <laughs> <laughs> so her name is Canon Shimura, or they call her Muramura, which means horny, apparently. Uh, she used to do rhythmic gymnastics with An, uh, one of the main characters. And she's been putting, she's like an Ojo-sama. She's a rich little girl. And she's been putting pressure on the parishioners who let the girls uh, practice at the temple. Uh, and so, like, the girls need to find a new practice place, basically, because of this. She resents on because she used to always place second to her in rhythmic gymnastics competition, no matter how hard she tried. And then on suddenly quit rhythmic gymnastics, basically because she became like a tokusatsu otaku. And so Muramura can never get her revenge. Um, so she's upset. That's awesome. So she wants to face off against An now in some sort of competition. Like she would prefer gymnastics, but the other girls are like, we don't know how to artistically judge this. So Muramura decides we can just run around a track then and whoever wins, wins. Um, so there's a flashback and she's thinking about the last time she competed against On. And basically she did her best. It was like her best day ever. And she like was in first place, like by like a long shot. And she went and talked to An in the locker room and she was like going to like say something like quippy to her. But An was looking really discouraged and Muramasa just happened. She dropped out. Yeah. Like An was like going to drop out because she's like, there's no way I can beat that. And then Muramura said the secret phrase, don't underestimate me or something like that, which just happened to be the same line that a tokusatsu TV heroine used to use that on watched. And so on gets super hyped up and does an amazing performance and takes first place. And so, uh, Muramura rep- like resents that whole experience like till this day. So, um, they, they start racing on the track and mid race, uh, murmur reveals that it's her birthday. She's also winning. Like she's like way out in front and she's like kind of celebrating already. And she's like, she's thanking God. And she's like saying she's divinely grateful to the extreme divine for this gift. A very weird thing to say, which of course turns out to be another live action heroine saying. And so it fires on up and gives her like another, like, <laughs> like speed boost and she just wins wins the race by a hair um and so Muramura is like inconsolable and says like i'm you can't still can't use the temple and like runs off um so since they can't use that temple uh roko says that like hey there's an abandoned train platform at the station where i live and um they can use that so there's like a montage they they start working on the show they put together costumes and start practicing and people are starting to take notice of them like like people pull up in a train at the train station and see that they're practicing um Muramura gets word of this and she's frustrated that An is getting noticed for her gymnastics ability again just doesn't understand it 
So they start having performances, but it's the rainy season in their area. So the stage is giving them trouble. They're, they start slipping. And in the second performance, An starts like she slips on the wet platform and basically sprains her ankle. And like Roko has to start ad libbing as the villain. Muramura is like there and she's like in her limousine and she like gets out and she's angry at the villain for taking it too easy on Kami Dayo. And uh, like her driver steps out and he's like, Ojo san. And uh, he like holds an umbrella over her head and she's like, Ojo sama, that's Kaju Dayo. He like corrects her and she's like even more pissed that he cares about this at all. Uh, and then the girls decide to end the show because of the rain and because An's ankle looks sprained. But Muramura just isn't having this. She like flips up on stage with her umbrella and says, I won't allow this. And she just starts fighting on like for real. But the whole crowd is like loving it because they think it's like a routine. And so they all get up and applaud. And then Muramura realizes that like she can get recognized for her gymnastics ability this way and obviously loves it, even though she's like pretending not to. So were you not surprised how suddenly her ankle was sprained and then it wasn't afterwards? Yeah, it's that was. Yeah. Like on is able to get up and start moving around really well. I mean, I guess maybe she got a little bit of an adrenaline, you could say, because she's like really being attacked. That was my only guess. But yeah, it was it was pretty sudden. Okay, I I wanted to bring that up because my right ankle can and will sometimes completely go out on me. Oh, wow. But I just have to give it a few moments. Huh. And then suddenly I I have full functionality again. Oh, that's interesting. So, like, I saw this and I was like, there's no way so many people can relate and understand how that works. Hmm. So, and, like, I don't don't get a sprain. I don't have any other injuries afterwards. It just literally, like, during, like, a full sprint or a sudden turn, I my ankle goes out on me and like i i have to stand on my left foot i can't even put anything on my right foot mm-hmm. but if i slowly tap my right foot back down and let let the functioning come back then it's like i'm back at 100% wow so, that's really weird that's cool though yeah no it's totally weird i've never met anybody else who did this so once i saw this in this anime i was like what <laughs> that's funny so yeah but go ahead Oh, and yeah, just at the end of the episode, they get threatened with a lawsuit by like Kaminari City, I think it is, who they're there. I was waiting for this. <laughs> they actually. have the original rights to like Kami Dayo. And even though they're like they renamed it Kujo Dayo, it's like clearly the same. And they're selling these products that are like almost exactly Correct. the same. So that was funny. So in the next episode, they'll have to change things up. Uh, why don't you hold your comment about this episode till the end of episode four? Because I think I'm going to talk about it there, too. Okay, um, yeah, I'm fine with that. So episode four, uh, as you would expect, Muramura now joins the group. Uh, they have a plan to change their show to avoid the lawsuit, basically. So they set out to create their own original city heroine. And like Leo says in a comment that he's going to talk about later, like much like Sakura Quest, the girls go try to figure out what is special about their own town of Hinano to base the heroine off of. So they all they all go out and they come up with like different ideas. Like Muramura like researches a bunch of books and like bores them with statistics. And like Roko's idea is like too detailed about railroads. But basically, they come to Mikan, who's like the little cute blonde girl, and her idea is to accentuate the town's like fruits because her family grows lemons. She says, and like uh, the whole town is like a big 
place to grow fruits. So, and since they'd be rooting for fruits, like she's like, maybe our team could be called Cheer Fruits, the name of the show. And so everybody accepts. They think it's a good idea. <laughs> uh, so we find out that Genki Aoyama, the blue haired girl in the, the wheelchair, her sister used to be a pop idol. But her sister quit and came back home because she wasn't doing well. Her sister's name is Yuki Aoyama. She is depressed and is not coming to school. Uh, and so she's just like staying at home trying to get over like missing her big shot, I guess. Um, so uh, there's like a big montage. Everyone works on the show and Mikan offers to write it. And I had to laugh because like during this montage of like all the girls working on the show, like Mikan is like trying to write it and she's, she's holding a book with the title that says writing is rewriting, but it's spelled like with an extra T in writing and then rewriting is spelled rewriting. It's just so bad. Like, I don't know if this was part of like the original episode or if like it's the translator got it wrong, but it just looks terrible. It, I just had to go, oh, Japan, you know, after I saw that. Yeah. Um, so the girls accept Mikan's scenario and An says they should probably have like a standard musical number like the, the shows do. But no one volunteers to sing right away. Um, but Genki, you see her thinking she's clearly thinking about her sister for the role. Um, so anyway, they put on their first performance without the, the singing act. And An, Mikan, and Mana, who's like the green haired girl, are the three cheer fruit heroes. While Muramura and Roko like, remain as the villains. And the performance is really good. But afterwards, they like kind of like sneakily listen to some fans for the reactions. And they're saying like they expected a bigger scale for like the three dollars that they had to pay, which is I felt was kind of annoying. But like it's fucking three dollars. Like, come on. But apparently they really wanted something from their three dollars. So they go back to the drawing board and they decide they like they need somebody to sing. Like it's, it has to be part of their performance. So they all go to karaoke and sing like Kami Dio music to see who gets the highest score. And like Genki gets like a 96 out of 100 and like Misaki and Roku do well. Muramura and An are terrible though. Like Muramura gets like a 30 and then An is like the whole time she's been trying to pass and she's like, fine, I'll sing, but I hate it. And like literally they have to do the karaoke thing where like she almost kills them with her singing because it's so bad. Uh. So, um, of course, Genki can't do it. She can't actually sing because she's a stagehand. Roku can't sing because she's the villain. And Misaki is behind the scenes as well. So Genki brings them sneakily to watch her sister sing. Uh, she's like at a cliffside. Like she's singing somewhere alone, just missing that she used to be an idol. And they listen to her sing. And she sings really well, as you would expect, because her voice actress in real life, Haruka Ishida, is a former member of that like idol group, AKB48. So, uh, and she's also voicing Genki in the show. She, so she's voicing both sisters at once. And I felt that she did a really good job of voicing and singing differently for both characters. So that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, that's the end of the episode. Clearly, Yuki is going to join the group as a singer. And uh, the other thing I failed to mention is that like in both of these episodes, the, there's a cute little tiny pink haired girl in the OP for this show. And she kind of showed up in both episodes, like peeking at like the, the race in the first episode. Yeah. The track meet, she was like peeking around the corner or something like that. And then she was in the audience cheering them on in the second episode. So like, she's clearly going to join soon since she's a big fan. But yeah, I see, I definitely see the comparisons to soccer quest with this show. Right. Because like it's it's like these girls who are trying to make their region. Yeah, they're better. both very similar in how like 
you know, a group of girls is trying to revive the interest or tourism in a single town. Yep. And that's what they're both doing. They're just, you know, soccer quest is just like, you know, people, uh, I guess, closer to our age, you know, a group of girls, they're in their twenties, you know, they're trying to find their careers. But this one is girls in their teens mm-hmm. who are trying to be idols for doing the same thing for their towns to try to boost their knowingship. I mean, that's like one of the girls, like her grandmother is like the governor or something like that. Yeah. Or she's like some kind of government official. And like, she gives like Misaki, like an ultimatum. Like if you want to save this town, like you, you're going to have to like fill this auditorium that your grandfather built. Like, yeah, exactly. And I, I see the two and like, I compare them and honestly, they're airing at the same time. So mm-hmm. I'm totally like, you know, unfortunately, comparing Sakura Quest against uh, Action Heroin Cheer Fruits. Yeah. And it, it to, to me, I'm destroying it. But yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I see how it would be fun. Like if you were like a younger girl, you would definitely like Action Heroin Cheer Fruit, Fruits more. But being an older male. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I find Sakura Quest way more engaging and whatnot but so you mean i i think this show's okay but it's not my thing yeah so when the drill haired girl showed up i was like something went off in my head like a warning alarm and i was like oh i this show kind of has a similar (laughs) setup to armed girls machiavellianism in some ways like in just in that there's like a lot of different cute girls who have different colored hairs and they're all like little gear girls and they're cute but like i feel like it deletes all of the parts of machiavellianism that i just didn't like like the crappy protagonist who's like there's no fighting yeah there's no fighting they're not like sexually harassing like the girls constantly or like there's not constant fan service like there's there's some like girls like getting like into like bras and and stuff in this show but it's mostly just like they're changing and it's also like the camera angles are usually far away and not exploiting them uh in a way that i think a lot of other shows do so like i kind of they're just doing the regular fan service you expect from anime yeah that's that's what i would say and so yeah i just i like compare this a little bit with uh machiavellianism just thinking like oh this is like a more wholesome show about like little girls and stuff with the same types of personalities in certain ways but yeah i don't know i'm still continuing to sort of enjoy it but uh we'll see as we get towards mid season if it if it gets boring or if it gets trivial then i may drop this lock as well but we'll have to find out Ooh, what would you potentially replace it with i don't know i have to think about it i don't want to show my cards now <laughs> Ooh, okay all right take us out so thank you for listening uh remember to like follow and subscribe to us on youtube to get updates on new podcasts or videos and follow us on twitter at nerdum or other for updates as well and like uh, leo said before if you have any feedback you can email us at nerdum and other nonsense at gmail.com but that's it for this week peace all right peace